It's crossing the tape right now. Let me explain what's happening here. Some breaking news to share with you this morning. M&A related. There's good activism. I think eBay is in that situation. They got a jewel in PayPal. There's bad activism. Unfortunately, JCPenney was a dying company. Examples of activism gone awry. And they don't want somebody, and this is their quote to me, on the board who makes stuff up. Okay. They make stuff up. Hello and welcome to According to Sources for the week of July 22nd, 2018. This is a podcast that devotes its time to the discussion of mergers and acquisitions, event-driven trading, and the sources that cover and surround them. I'm your host, Mike Samuels of Broom Street Capital. On today's show, we're going to talk about a few things, a quick update about the events that occurred in this past trading week, including ZTE, NXPI, Papa John's, and a few other names. But the majority of today's podcast is actually going to be devoted to my conversation on Friday with author Michael Batnick. He's the author of the book, Big Mistakes, The Best Investors and Their Worst Investments. It's a book that I really enjoyed on my way out to San Diego when I was traveling. It's 15 chapters, really great reading. And like I said, I'm going to devote much of the time getting to know this source and going into this book into further detail because I think it could help any investor. But first, let's just review a little bit about what exactly happened this week. So first, starting with NXPI and ZTE. I've been saying for weeks that I thought once ZTE sanctions were lifted, China would approve NXPI. And that was wrong. I acknowledge the winners when I have them, but I have to acknowledge that I was way off in this situation. Perhaps it was because a trade war between the U.S. and China has only escalated. Clearly, China is not interested in approving this deal that eight of nine countries gave the green light to. I continue to get questions on Twitter whether or not I think this deal still has a slim chance of happening. And no, I do not. 5% at best. And I think at this point, you need to be playing for what exactly is the downside here. Most analysts have been using 90 to $95 a share for the downside in NXPI. And while that seems reasonable, I think we need to anticipate that there could be a tremendous avalanche of selling from the event traders when this termination happens, most likely on Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. When something like this happens, there's shareholder turnover. Event guys sell and value guys show up. And the problem with the situation, in my opinion, is that NXPI on August 1, a week from Wednesday, will report earnings. In the company's last earnings report, they missed guidance badly. And you have to remember something. NXPI has not been running at what I would call full capacity for these past 19 months. And perhaps it's taking its toll on its business, this waiting and waiting for the Qualcomm deal to get approved. The mutual funds and hedge funds that matter, and I'm talking about funds like Vanguard or Fidelity, These funds are going to need to see some sort of clarity in NXPI before they start buying and taking a significant stake based on solely valuation, because again, the event will be gone. So what I'm saying is between July 25th and August 1st, when NXPI does actually report, it's going to be difficult for those funds to step in and buy. So don't be surprised if in fact this stock goes below $90 because it's not clear exactly what the valuation support will be. And remember, July 25th seems to be the true date. There's a lot of people that believe Qualcomm could eventually come back should the China-U.S. situation perhaps clear up. I don't believe that to be true. I'm not sure anyone will, in fact, play this game again and try to buy NXPI. So going forward, it's going to be valued, in my opinion, strictly on valuation. And that valuation, for now, remains to be seen. Quickly, I want to move on to Papa John's. 
This is a name that's familiar to many investors. We had two pieces of news in this past week. The first, Wendy's. Wendy's, according to the Wall Street Journal, had been in preliminary discussions to buy Papa John's. But the article later said that in the wake of the recent scandal, the talks had died down. And then later this weekend, we got news from the journal again that the Papa John's board was in fact attempting to create a poison pill to stop founder John Schnatner from regaining control of his company. Clearly, in this past year, restaurant M&A has heated up. We saw Buffalo Wild Wings get taken out. We saw Panera Bread get taken out. So the idea of Papa John's being on the block, I don't think is crazy. That being said, I'm not sure if a company is going to want to step in right now in the wake of this scandal. Now, when you see this poison pill story in the journal, here's what it should say to you. It should say to you that Schnatter and perhaps private equity want to team up and buy this company back. Now, the question you should be asking yourself is, so what can I get for it? Papa John's closed around $51 on Friday. Stifle Nicholas put out a note last week saying that they think the M&A valuation in Papa John's would be about $60 to $65 a share and that anything higher than that would be a reach. So for me, this is not really an event that I want to get involved in. A, the upside isn't that great, and B, I just don't think anyone's going to want to step in in the wake of this recent scandal. The second situation I want to briefly talk about, GlaxoSmithKline, ticker GSK. And the reason I want to talk about this is the FT put out an article very late on Friday saying that they were contemplating breaking the company up into three different divisions. Now, GlaxoSmithKline, just for perspective, bottomed out in 2009 at $27.28 a share and today trades close to 42 By comparison, Pfizer and Merck have tripled. They're each up over 300% in that time frame. So it's no wonder that investors are pushing for Glaxo to do something. But if you look further in the article, it says that it could take two to three years for this to take place. Now, I like breakups. I like breakup stories and investors who have done them have been paid off them. But I don't want to wait two or three years to watch this play out. So for now, until we get a little bit more clarity on what exactly Glaxo has planned, this will be a situation that I'll stay away from. As a trader that focuses on events and M&A, I'm constantly obsessing over the mistakes I made in the past. One way to avoid them is by learning from the mistakes of others, which is why I picked up a copy of Big Mistakes, The Best Investors and Their Worst Investments, written by Michael Batnick. Besides being the author of this book, Michael is the director of research at Ritholtz Wealth Management. He has his own podcast called Animal Spirits, and he also writes the blog, The Irrelevant Investor. During this interview, we talked everything from Warren Buffett to Bill Ackerman and Herbalife to Sequoia and Valiant, and even play a quick game of five questions at the end. Just a warning, there was a little bit of an audio issue in the beginning. However, don't worry, it does go away in about the first minute. So, Michael, just to jump in a little bit here, the book is called Big Mistakes, The Best Investors and Their Worst Investments. There's 15 chapters. Each one describes these great investors and their biggest errors. Which story did you find the most interesting? Which one was the most fun to write? All right. So you asked me, uh, I'll have a different answer every day of the week. But for right now, the one that comes to mind is probably Mark Twain. We were just talking about Twitter. If that guy had a Twitter account, he would destroy it. He had, uh, to say away with words, is like an understatement, but he was the worst freaking investor. And he was totally enamored with entrepreneurs and innovators and investments. Like he committed every crime in the book. And the worst thing that he did was he did not know when to stop digging. Went to stop throwing good money after bad. He was, I'm reading this, I'm like, oh, he would have been on Shark Tank today. You know, he's like the Kevin O'Leary of his day. Yeah. There were some great quotes that were in it, but like, could you tell the story of the typesetter? 
Yeah, so the typesetter, I, I suppose, was like the before the typewriter. It, it had like 180 pieces or whatever, and it just never worked properly. And it was just more money that like every single time he was getting swindled by this inventor. And what ended up happening is that he went completely broke and had to literally go around the globe doing a stand-up comedy tour to repay his debts. I wrote down two quotes from him when he was talking about the typesetter guy. And he said he could persuade a fish to come out and take a walk with him. And when he's present... I always believe him. I can't help it. And then he said, I feel connected to the typesetter as if it was a real person. And I love that because like when I'm in a trade sometimes, you do feel that way. Today I, I got chewed up in Philip Morris and I'm like, Philip Morris is a part of me now. You know, this is a part of my identity. I, I, was, I was the king of revenge trading. Like you wanna, you wanna make your money back the same way that you lost it. Um, another great part of the Mark Twain chapter is he passed, he said no thanks to Alexander Graham Bell. Right. Right. And then when he came back, he went to Europe, he came back, and he had this amazing quote, something along the lines of, it's unfortunate how the inexperienced and uninformed succeed while the knowledgeable fail, something like that. I mean, it was much more eloquent than that. And it was just total sour grapes. Um, and at every turn, he just could not have been a worse investor. There, uh, so I guess just, just less of the obvious takeaway from that is one of the most dangerous things is that people have had success in other fields, whether it's literature or medicine or engineering, they think that translates to the market. Oh, I'm smart. I'm a good dentist. I'm a good writer. I can do this. Right. And the opposite is probably true. Like the less you know, the less dangerous you are. Right. There's two main themes in the book that I notice. right? The one is uh, two main mistakes. One, veering out of your lane and the dangers of veering out of your lane. And then the second one is anytime you get like crazy over levered. Yeah. Going back to the first theme, which example do you think is the best uh, for you know when veering out of your lane goes wrong? So many to choose from. Um, I suppose Steinhardt. Yeah. Right. Like, Steinhardt or Druckenmiller, I thought. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Both great stories. So one of Steinhardt's main sources of edge was his contacts with the desks back in the day. He was right. always the first, and then. Inexplicably, well, the hedge fund industry was was gaining legs, and he was just being uh, doused with outside investors, like clamoring to get in. And he said, "All right, sure, I'll invest in European bonds. Why not?" And then the Fed hiked, and he got absolutely destroyed. And I think he he made uh, much of the money back in the year later. But then he closed up shop. He was like, "I'm done. Can't do this." Yeah. Um, so yeah, staying in your lane. And Buffett talks about this all the time. It doesn't really matter how wide your circle is of confidence. Just for goodness sakes, do not veer outside of it. You must be a big Charlie Munger fan because you quote Charlie Munger all over this book. Yeah. And you, you did have a chapter uh, devoted to Buffett, but you also gave Munger his own chapter. And I learned a lot. I didn't even know that he had his own fund. And I guess the interesting thing I thought about that was that he had he was really into concentration. Yeah. So he was like the Bill Ackman of yeah. his day. Yeah. And uh, I think I said like 61% of his book was one stock mm -hmm. at one point. Yeah. Uh, how did him and Buffett get together? So I think the story goes um, that one of Buffett's LPs said, you gotta meet Charlie. And I think coincidentally, Charlie had worked for Buffett's grandfather in the, in the, in the grocery store in Omaha before moving out to LA. And uh, at one point, one of the LPs wrote a check out to Charlie Munger, um, giving, handing it to Buffett and right. wrote, made it out to Charlie Munger. And he said, all right, I guess I should meet this fella. And they, they met and they hit it off. And at the time, Munger was doing real estate in LA um, and, and law at the same time, and then he started a fund, and his returns were pretty astronomical. So I guess somebody said to me, well, Munger didn't really make a mistake. And I said, yeah, good point. I guess he's the one part of the one story that he didn't necessarily make a mistake, but he did get destroyed. And I just wanted to make the point to the reader that everybody gets destroyed. Well, it's almost like 
he, he said in the book, like, you have to be with, willing to withstand the pain of these 50% pullbacks that'll happen three times a century, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I guess the mistake is being so levered that you can't withstand it, but yep. he was able to do it. Yep. Buffett's genius is not just that he was a great stock picker or capital allocator, which of course he was, but he never sold into a, into a bear market, ever. He always thought the future would look better than the past, and um, of course, that didn't have to turn out that way, right? We could have been just a lousy stock market, um, but he never, he never, he never sold. He just let compounding do its thing. Right. Well, if anything, he was taking the other side in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, right? Yeah, when everyone was well. puking. Yeah, yeah, he did okay. Let's switch to Jerry's side for a second. This was not a story I heard. You hear about people on CB, CNBC, and they talk about the go-go sixties, yeah. and I guess he was like the poster child yes. from that. Uh, the quote that stood out to me was, um, don't confuse brains with a bull market. Yeah. Uh, when I thought about that, I said, well, okay, who's the modern day Jerry Sai? And a couple came to mind, but who do you think? You know, I did a, a post a few years ago, like where is the modern day superstar? The last sort of two famous uh, managers were born, I think in like 1964, or maybe I'm making that up, uh, but it was, it, was, it was Einhorn and Asnes. They're like the youngest of the sort of brand name money managers. But who is the modern day Jerry Sai? I don't know. I mean And when I say that I mean who was like we thought was great, oh, but it was okay. just getting confused because the market yeah. was going up. So the, here's the names that came to mind sure. for me. I thought about uh, Bruce Berkowitz, okay. Fairholme. Yep. Like crushed it in two thousand nine, two thousand ten, but yep. is he that good? Yep. Not we don't know. And then I was thinking, is Eddie Lampert uh, kind of a modern day? Jerry Sai. All right, so I'll throw out one name, and uh, this is gonna be unpopular, and I'm just speculating, I really have no idea, but Paul Peter Jones. So he started his hedge fund in 1980, and a lot of these guys started their yeah. career in the early 80s and had the wind at their backs. Now granted, a lot of people started in the early 80s, and there's only uh, a few uh, Paul Peter Joneses and a few Stanley Joe Miller's, like there's a handful of them, so they were the best of the bunch. But he had an interesting quote. He said that often the best time to sell is at the top. Or when the market's not at the top, obviously the best time to sell at the top is when the market's making new highs. Right. So he started his career, his head fund in 1980, and from 1980, I, I just the only reason why this is at the top of my mind is because I reread this post uh, the other day. So from 1980 through, through September 2017, there were 737 new highs in the S&P 500, um, and only three of them, in hindsight, were good selling opportunities. Right. 87, 2007. So there's no way that he actually followed his own advice. And he, he was, he's very eloquent, has a ton of really great quotes, losers have losers, you know, et cetera. Yeah. But he's one that I, that I wonder, was he the beneficiary of a massive bull market? And I'm not taking anything away from that, I have no idea. You know, who the hell am I to, but I'm just, yeah, so that's, that's my, my guess. Let's explore, there was another theme was like the idea of ego and the role that ego plays in trading. Yeah. And so you told the Jesse Livermore story and I'm a short term trader, I'm an event guy. Some of these quotes really resonate. So this one was, our natural tendency is to hold on to losers longer than we should because in doing so, we are deferring defeat and thus preserving our ego. And that's pretty good. I love that. And it's just like today, it's the same thing. I'm getting chewed up in this trade. And I'm like, just bail. You know you're wrong. But there's that part of you that's like, well, it's not a loss until I close it out. Yeah, because the natural tendency for people to say, I will sell when I get back to even. Yeah. And so that creates these resistance levels of people that are just trying to get out with, with, with a break even. But that's like the disposition effect that Kahneman spoke about. And it is the tendency that you feel a loss twice as strongly as, as an equal gain. And yeah, I mean, taking losses suck. 
like I traded a lot and I made every mistake in the book. And one of the things that I was really good at was taking losses very quickly. Mm. Um, one of the things that I was really bad at was riding winners. So yeah. what I would do is I would buy a breakout, watch this thing move three or 4% in two days, and then I would sell it on the retest right. <laughs> or break even. So that was like my MO. The reason that I think I never was gravitating towards technical analysis is I, I had bosses that would be like, why are you in this? That could never be an answer. Nope, ever. You we know? So you I had to never, have a real answer. You can never say there's more buyers than sellers. There's an, overall, there's an overwhelming amount of demand for the stock. It's like, okay, but why? Give me an answer. And, and it that, can't be because it's breaking out. Yeah, it's going yeah, up. Yeah, it, it just can't be. So, you know, people, I'm 37. I didn't really experience LTCM, mm. but it's a great story. Yeah. And so, it, and it talks about like the insane leverage that happened. Can you give like a brief summary to like anyone that's like 25 years old that sure. doesn't know it? So, Roger Lowenstein's When Genius Failed is one of the best books ever written about markets. And it talks about long-term capital management. And two of the, two of the uh, pioneers there were Myron Scholes and, and Bob Merton. And they both won Nobel Prizes. And their IQs are off the charts. Um, and what they did worked really, really well. They found an inefficiency in the market and they exploited the shit out of it. And Economics 101, competition, right? Right. Oh, these guys are doing really well. In comes Goldman and whoever else. The spreads of the, of the trades that they were putting on um, and these mispricings started to compress naturally. They started to get smaller and smaller. So what they did was they levered up, right? To get the same return. And their, if you look at a chart of their returns, it looks exactly like uh, Nassim Taleb's turkey joke. Right, the life of a turkey. Right. Days and then zero. Yeah. Um, so it was just all the way up, all the way up. And I think one year, there's like a crazy stat that they made more they made more money than McDonald's or something like nuts. Um, they had more brain power in that office than like uh, MIT, I think, was one of the quotes from Lowenstein, something like that. And they blew up spectacularly, spectacular blow up. The I saw in there at one point they were levered, uh, like they had a, a, a trillion and a quarter of assets. And what was the equity? It was a hundred to one. They were levered. Yeah. I mean, I mean, has anyone touched that since? I mean, I don't. Are you even allowed legally? Can yeah, you do that? I don't think so. I mean, you are giving yourself zero margin for error, right? Like, yeah. There's, there's not much wiggle room. But I mean, and, and just to explain it further, I mean, this wasn't just a fund issue. This was like this pervaded the entire stock market. This was uh, pervasive. Yeah. Like they had to be bailed out. Yeah. Uh, this was almost like an AIG kind of event. So the Fed got together. The Fed didn't bail them out, but they orchestrated, they orchestrated the bailout. And one of, there's an interesting story that one of the firms that did not put money in was Bear Stearns. Mm. And, you know, you could read between the lines and, and figure out maybe why Bear Stearns was allowed to go bankrupt. Right, right. When you got to Bill Ackman, you had a lot to pick from. Yeah. <laughs> but you went with Herbalife. Why'd you do that? And also, did you read Scott Wapner's book? Not yet. I'm, I'm, I have it on my, on my shelf. It, it's a great read, and it gives you, uh, when you read it, when I read it, I was like, well, this was the reason he got involved. One, not, not to give anything away, but essentially, you know, those Indago girls that, that pitched the Herbalife to Einhorn and they pitched it around, everyone thought Einhorn was going to present it at that Irisone conference. Okay. Then he didn't. But Ackman got in that short for that conference, like, like a day trader would. Nuts. And then when it didn't happen, he goes, well, we can be the catalyst. And that's how it started. Originally, I chose Valiant. Right. But then um, you could save that for something else. <laughs> I, I saved, right. saved that for Sequoia. And the reason why I went with Herbalife actually was uh, Jeff Graham told me to. Um, Jeff Graham wrote an awesome book called Dear Chairman. And he was part of the inspiration for this book was I loved the format of that book where it was 
It was not a continuous read. You could skip around. If you didn't want to read the chapter on Ross Perot or you didn't want to read the Buffett, you could skip it and move on to the next thing. So the same thing with my book. If you're like, I'm so sick of Buffett, I get it, then don't read it. Right. So anyway, so I, I, was, uh, I was eating, um, I guess, breakfast, I don't remember, with, with Jeff, and I told him about, about uh, Ackman. He said, no, no, no. Do Valiant for Sequoia, do Herbalife, so you get two bites of the apple. And I said, ah, duh. Yeah. You could have done JCPenney. You could have done Target. Yeah, there's a lot so of So do you think that when, like, if, if we're going to talk 25 years from now, will we look at this and be like, Ackman's one of the greats and this was, like, his downtime? I don't think so. I mean, again, take You don't this, think he'll be one of the greats? No. I don't either. No, take this with a giant grain of salt because what do I know? But uh, he, like, got them blew up. So... His, his revival is something of a head-scratcher. Like, I don't know how he did it. He's, he's obviously very charismatic and incredibly persuasive, and he knows his, he knows his shit, like, inside and out. He knew what was going on with Herbalife. Now, it doesn't mean that he was right. Obviously, he was spectacularly wrong. But these guys are just super persuasive, and they can talk to people into giving them money. Now, is he a great investor? Uh, I don't know. I don't think so. Um, he's got a few billion dollars too, so yeah, who am so I to say? Yeah, exactly. But he's a great presenter, and he's had some amazing traits. Did you see the, the documentary on uh, Herbalife on Netflix? The betting on zero? Yeah. yeah. How great was the scene where his PR guy is like, all right, well, let's say you're three hours in and the stock's not going down. And, and Ackman's like, don't worry about it. It'll go, it'll go down. And the guy's like, <laughs> the guy literally laughs, like, can, can you do better than that? Like, what, what do I say? And Ackman's just like, don't worry about it. I mean, he went to one of the, I mean, he had, I don't know, 10 Herbalife presentations. He started sobbing at the end of one. Yeah. Uh, talking about his immigrant grandfather yeah. coming to this country and comparing it to uh, the Latinos that he said he was saving uh, in Herbalife. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was crazy. So you, 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 you read about Ackman, and it's just so obvious. Like, keep your mouth shut. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, and if you're going to talk to your friends and family about something that you're doing, just say, hey, listen. I'm buying Bitcoin at six thousand bucks because I think you know I think it's fun. If it goes below fifty five hundred dollars, I'm out. Right? Like, just give yourself an out. Don't get married to a stock. Um, and it's just such an easy mistake to avoid. But in Ackman's case, when he's doing an eight hour presentation, how can he then turn around and be like, eh, never mind, my thesis was wrong. Right. Right. Like he, he just he, keeps digging in. It's so hard not to. It's just human nature. I know. The other thing, I, again, I don't want to give away your whole book. That's okay. This John Keynes. Yeah. What I liked the most about that chapter was when he talks about the story about trying to pick the six prettiest faces in a book of a hundred. So good. And the point that he was trying to make in this exercise is when you see a hundred faces and you're asked to pick the prettiest six faces, when it comes to the stock market, you can't just think, well, who do I think is the prettiest? You have to anticipate, well, who will everyone else think is the prettiest? And for me, here's what that applies to for me. Sometimes... You don't know whether a trade is going to be right or wrong fundamentally, but you know it's going to work. So I'll give you a perfect example. If there was an Ebola scare tomorrow, right? You know that there's, there's a list of stocks, the hazmat suit maker, this one that makes the vaccine that doesn't work, that are all going to go up. But does it fundamentally change the company? No. You know it's going to be some BS blip in like some spike in the radar of the, of the length of this company. But it works. Yeah. And that's what that game is to me. Like it's being like, well, I know that other people are going to do this. So should I do it? Yeah. So the, that was such a great chapter. And by the way, that chapter in his book, um, I'm, I'm drawing a blank, general, was it general, general Theory, um, his book. But that chapter 12 is probably the greatest chapter ever written, ever, about investing. And the thing is, in terms of like the, the beauty contest analogy, 
It's that you're not trying to pick the prettiest girl, you're trying to pick what other people think will be the prettiest girl. Yeah. And that, to predict psychology is just so asinine, right? Like you, you can't do it, it's just impossible. And I made the analogy that if you're betting on a, on a favorite at the horse track, all right, you know you're getting lousy odds, right? You see the odds. Um, or if you wanna bet on the Warriors, you know you're getting lousy payout, right? If you bet on the Knicks, you're gonna get 1,000 to one. But with investing, you don't see the odds. Right, so you, right. Ne- you never know what's priced into a stock until after the fact. Yep. And yep. In, in Keynes' case, by all accounts, that guy had a massive ego, but to his credit, he, he basically wrote the book on macroeconomics. He got destroyed um, trying to figure out, you know, trying to read the tea leaves, and, and he completely did a 180 and became a bottom-up investor, value investor, and did tremendously well. So I can't imagine the, um, the mental flexibility uh, to do something like that. Making this personal, I guess. What do you think your biggest mistake's been? So I was pretty fortunate in the sense that I didn't make any mistakes, and it's probably a function of where where the money came from. So my mother passed when she was young. I was very young. Um, I was 25 years old, and uh, so I had a few bucks that she left me, and I had I was unemployed. So I said, you know what, Paul Tudor Jones, here I come. Mm. And so because it was, the money was so personal to me, I never took any big losses. One of the best things in hindsight that I did was I wrote down everything that I was doing every single day. Mm. And I would read it, and I kept, I hung on to it, and reading it today is hilarious. But I would read it, and it just sounded so ridiculous. Like you, can't, you can't hold yourself accountable uh, and not, not face the facts, unless you're completely delusional, which I don't think I am. Right. So I, I, tried, um, I tried doing the, the, you know, the, the fundamental stuff, I tried doing the chart stuff, I tried it all. And I said, you know what, I, it taught me a great respect for the market. I think one of the overarching themes in investing is, for whatever reason, people severely, severely underestimate what a difficult opponent the market is. And I, I just learned my lesson. Like, how many times can I bang my head against the wall? And the best analogy that I heard from this was Jason Zweig. Um, when you're trading, it's just you and a screen, right? Yep. So you don't see the millions of people that you're, that you're uh, playing. But when you're on a beach, or you're on top of a mountain and you're, you're looking up into the stars and you feel so tiny, right? You're like, it just really puts that into perspective. That's exactly how you should feel when you press buy and sell, but you don't because you don't see the millions of, uh, you don't see renaissance on the other side of your trades, but you should. You know how many times I think I'm in charge of a stock? Like I'm like a gunslinger and I'm like, yep, this is the bottom. So this and is- it's so, it's insane where that, you know, where does that arrogance come from? And, and you get humbled so many times. Well, we're all overconfident. Like, I, think, I don't think anybody's immune from that. And one of the great stories about, about uh, appreciating who you're trading against, and probably in the snowball, one of, one of Buffett's biographies, when he went back to his dad's brokerage uh, company, and back in the day, you would get stock certificates, like right. physical stock certificates. And he bought a company, and the certificate came from Ben Graham. And somebody said to him, what do you know, or what do you think you know that Ben Graham doesn't? And that's exactly how we should behave. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, I was thinking as I read this, what's my biggest mistake? And I think it's two things. One, when I veer out of my lane, which is, you know, fundamentals and events, and I start doing things like trading spies or trading cues and thinking, uh, you know, I'm going to trade TLT because I think I know what the bond market's going to do. And the thing is, I start those things small. And the worst thing that happens to me is I, ma- is I make a little bit money uh, the first few times. And then I get cocky and then I get blown up. So that's what's happened to me. And then you talk in here also about time sunk cost. Yeah. And you basically define the concept of time sunk cost as 
The more time you put into an investment, the harder it is to change your mind. And, and like I'm living that right now in a trade. So I don't know if you've been following Qualcomm NXPI. So Qualcomm has been trying to buy NXPI for 19 months. They, all, they needed uh, nine countries to approve the deal. Eight of the nine did. China has not. And you know what's going on between the U.S. and China. You know, they just refuse to approve it. And Qualcomm set a July 25th deadline. Uh, and as we speak, that, that'll be in about four days. Wow. You know, the stock was trading for 110. Deal price is 127.50. Everyone who's been following this deal has been waiting for this to, to happen. And, uh, you know, I put so much time and so much energy. I, I got to the point where I'm hiring a woman on TaskRabbit uh, to go to the Carlsbad private airport and watch the Qualcomm planes. It, you know, like that kind of crazy. But I was so emotionally attached to it, I didn't want to let it go. And that clouded my judgment, which was, well, what's really happening? Well, they're not going to approve the deal. And, you know, and what's the stock worth? It's probably worth 90 and it's trading 110. I shouldn't be in this. Sequoia, there was an, actually there was, a, there was an article in the Washington Post maybe last year about them and their experience with Valiant. And um, I can't imagine studying a stock for four years and not buying or selling. Right. Uh, not, not going long or short. Um, give me like, give me a week. And I'm like, all right, I, I know what I need to know. Let's, let's get into it. Like, I, I don't have that personality. I'm not patient like that. So I can't imagine the sunk cost that goes into studying a stock for four years. Imagine you're studying a stock for four years and you're watching it like Buffett does whatever and the stock triples in that time period. How do you buy it after that? Even though it might be the right move. Yeah. You know, so um, sunk cost is... When I, when I was reading the Sequoia story... And well, first of all, I didn't know that they were essentially started because of Berkshire and that like Berkshire closed for a little bit or withdrew money, uh, gave back money. And he was like, put it with Sequoia. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the other thing was, uh, you know, they round trip Valiant 16 to 250 to 10, but that they had this adoration for Warren Buffett. And in the middle of the Valiant thing, the one monger quote that you didn't say was, was he called Valiant a sewer. Right. And, and I'm waiting. I'm like, when's he going to talk about the sewer comment? But they ignored that. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had, like, had their blinders on, I guess. Or I think, uh, didn't he compare, um, what's the guy's name? Was it Michael Pearson? I think, he, I think they compared Pearson to Buffett. Uh, because they had, Berkshire was like 35% of Buffett yeah. at one time. It's like, I'm just reading like, like oh my God. Ackman, I think, called him the next Buffett. Okay. Or something, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's so funny. That's such an obvious red flag. Is, is this the next Buffett? Right, whether it's uh, Eddie Lampert right. or Bill Ackman or uh, Elizabeth Holmes, is she the next Steve Jobs? That is such a great, such a great sign. Uh, maybe to take the other side. Right, right. So uh, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about today was uh, there was a Wall Street Journal article early July, and it talked about Greenlight Capital, which is down twenty percent year to date. Uh, and here I'm just going to read you some of the highlights sure. from the article. It says. It described David Einhorn as extremely closed off and secretive. This is his investors were saying this. Uh, they said at times his arrogance was preserved, perceived as mean and belittling. There is a story about John Burbank pitching him Valero in like 2001 at an idea dinner. And he berated John Burbank for the next three hours saying he should do his uh, due diligence. And meanwhile, uh, Einhorn was long WorldCom. It was telling everyone at the table to buy WorldCom. This one investor said that he thinks that 30 to 40% of the underperformance in the fund is tied to his divorce. And he said, I'll never again invest in a fund manager who's getting a divorce because it's too much of a distraction. So I'll ask you the same uh, Einhorn question that I did about Ackman. Which of these stories that you wrote about do you think parallels what's happening with Greenlight right now? Um, John Paulson, maybe. Mm. Um, and uh, actually, I- Einhorn That's harsh then. 
harsh, harsh to who? Harsh to Einhorn. Yeah. Because that means, I mean, you call him kind of a, a one and done, <clears throat> Paulson. Yeah. So I almost wrote a chapter about Einhorn, but I it, it was on the cutting room floor. I think he's, I think it was 2015 where he just got demolished. Everything he did, everything he did went to shit. And he was very forthcoming and candid in his uh, letter to investors. And again, I, I feel I'm like embarrassed to even talk bad to talk dispatchingly about Einhorn because of who he is and who I am, but I would my thoughts anyhow. He made his bonus as a value investor. Again, from what I can tell, just sort of lost his way maybe and started focusing on things outside of his circle of competence. And for instance, he made some sort of weird analogy that stuck with me. I think he said something about like the Fed and the jelly donut. Do you remember that? Yes, yes. And it's like, wait, why is he doing the macro stuff? Like. And he had a big position in gold, if I remember correctly. Yep. Again. Just like Paulson. Yeah, I don't understand how you even begin to value gold. And now it does seem like he's returning to his value-oriented roots. His biggest position is General Motors. It's a huge position, I think like 20 or 30%. Yeah. And he has a bubble basket of stocks um, that he's been short, I think, since 2015. And in that basket are every stock you want to be long. Right. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if he if he does a little bit better going forward. But here's the thing. I don't believe that money managers mean revert the way that asset classes do because there is nothing systematic about his process. There is nothing repeatable about what he's doing. So there's no reason to think that he's going to uh, mean revert. So do I think that we'll look back and say that this was a really good time to get long Einhorn? I don't know. I think the one reason why he gets, why he doesn't get hit as hard as Ackman is because Ackman just seems so arrogant. Yeah. Right? And Einhorn yeah. seems like a good guy by all accounts. Like, at least, he's, you know, he's got the little boy face. Like, he seems like a, a decent guy. Um, so he's much, much harder to root against. I have, you know, I hope he recovers for his investor's sake and for his own. Um, I don't know. What do you think? You know, I loved going to see him present. I thought he was, like, an amazing presenter. And I remembered you know, going to watch him do Green Mountain Coffee and Chipotle and, you know, and, and they, they were such unbelievable trading events. And I mean, he was like a god for a little yeah. bit. Like if he breathed on stock, it would go. Was he know? long Green Mountain or short? He was shorted. Okay. You know, it's funny. I shorted Green Mountain in like 2010 maybe. Yeah. And it got taken out. I think Coke bought it. No, um, Coke oh. bought a stake and then JAB ended up buying Green Mountain. Okay. JAB's buying everyone. So right he stocked it tremendously well. Tremendous. Yes. He had this famous line, the stock went from like 90 to 20. And he said, what do you call a stock that's down uh, 90%, a stock that went down 80% and then got cut in half? It's one of the best lines ever. That was the low, yeah. okay? Oh that was the low. And, and honestly, it may have been his high water mark in like his whole career. You know, that was like 2014. I'll tell you what, if I was an investor, I would, I would take my money out. Yeah. Because I, like I said, I just don't believe that mean reversion exists with, with money managers. And I think, I can't imagine the pressure that he's feeling. Forget about the fact that he's a billionaire. It doesn't matter at this point, right? He's been rich right. for a long, long time. So, but uh, but just when you get in that hole so publicly, like I, I imagine this is weighing on him incredibly. And how could that not, how can that not affect your decisions? How can you be objective when all you're trying to do is just get back to even? Not only that, but I mean, at, at what point, I mean, he's been saying Amazon's a short since it was 350. Okay, it's 1850. Right. Come on. Right. Warren Buffett comes on TV and says how great a company right. Amazon is. Like, come on. Buffett's going to buy Amazon before Einhorn covers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so that, I mean, that, that's the thing. How can you, when you're so public about how you feel, like, we are just loath to change our minds because who wants to admit that they were wrong? 
right? yeah. it feels awful. But I, I do not envy uh, his investors right now or, or him. I, you know, I, feel, I feel for the guy. Yeah. Last thing, we're just going to play a little game that I've been trying to play with, with all guests. It's called Five Questions. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you five questions. You'll see what happens. Question one. Uh, describe Elon Musk in one word. Uh, uh, egotistic. What do you think will happen first? Tesla 100 or Tesla 500? Tesla 500, but can I just say one thing about that? Yeah. Okay. If I were involved in Tesla, and I'm not, and I can't imagine why you would want to be, but I would, if I was short and I was pounding the table on the short side, I would so much rather short it after it's gotten cut in half. Like, right. wait for the story to blow up and then pile on. Yeah, like Valiant. Like, like exactly. Yeah, exactly. just wait. It just wait. Uh, question two, outside of Warren Buffett, if you had to let one person manage your money, who would it be? Dave Blitzer from the S&P 500 Index Committee. Okay. Question three. If I had to buy one stock as a gift for a newborn baby that they couldn't sell until they went to college, what would that one stock be? That's a good question. Okay, one individual stock. This is so far outside my comfort zone. Um, Amazon. Question four. The I, This is multiple choice. The idea of buying Bitcoin makes me A, sick to my stomach, B, excited for the future, C, Feel like I'm missing out if I don't buy a little, so I will. <laughs> um, let's go A. A, sick to my stomach. Question five, and last. Every year, Warren Buffett auctions off a lunch with him for the Glide Foundation. If you were to have lunch with anyone living or dead, who would it be? Lunch anyone living or dead. Um, I don't really feel this way because he probably, I'm sure he's just an awful conversation with some real life person, but I'm a big Howard Stern guy, so I'll go with that. Love Howard Stern. Love Howard Stern. All right. Again, the book is called Big Mistakes, The Best Investors and Their Worst Investments. Uh, You have a blog called The Irrelevant Investor, and the podcast is called Animal Spirits. That's right. Thanks for coming on, man. Thank you. My thanks again to Michael Batnick. He's the author, again, of Big Mistakes, The Best Investors and Their Worst Investments. You can find him again at Animal Spirits Podcast or The Irrelevant Investor. I learned so much during this interview. The big mistakes that everyone seems to make, and I make them all the time, veering out of your comfort zone, swaying away from your circle of competence and not realizing it sometimes, being over levered, so many great lessons from so many of the great investors. And again, I thank Michael for coming in. And that's it for According to Sources for the week of July 22nd. I'll see you next week. The ideas expressed in this podcast today are the ideas of Broom Street Capital, Michael Samuels, and According to Sources. These parties are not liable for any investment losses based on the opinions expressed today in this podcast.
Amazon has everything for back to school. Zebra lunchbox? Check. Cool Adidas gear like t-shirts, shoes, and backpacks? Check. Triceratops folders and pencils? Check. Lasercat t-shirts? Check. Get your back to school shopping done now at amazon.com slash back to school and enjoy free shipping on millions of items. No need to leave your home or hassle with crowds. Amazon.com. No better place to get everything back to school from A to Z.